we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Howdy and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. We're your hosts. I'm Willow Truman. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And today we're back for part two of our series on Jane Led. Rootin' tootin' cowboy adventure. Yes, <laughs> precisely. Ah, yes, Jane Led, who, despite being a blind, elderly, middle-class widow, became one of the most significant female visionaries of the late 17th century. Not a gunslinger in the Old West. Mm, kind of, a spiritual gunslinger of Nah, don't you can't. Nah, you don't. I don't, know. don't try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last week, we went over the period of her life, beginning with her silver spoon birth to becoming widowed after her cousin husband's death in 1670. <laughs> yes. The same year she had her first vision of the Virgin Sophia. Yes. We explored the first entry from her 2000 page spiritual diary, A Fountain of Gardens. Mm-hmm. We gained a little familiarity with that old German shoemaker, Jakob Boma. And we learned about the post-Reformation cultural backdrop of 17th century Europe. You'd be for, you'd be forgiven for thinking we're smart if you just heard that that <laughs> it's intro. True. But but we're idiots. Yeah. So in this episode, we're going to explore the period of her life from her first vision in 1670 to the loss of her actual vision in 1695. But not the loss of her spiritual vision. No. Okay. To her death in 1704. And as her physical vision deteriorated, her spiritual visions grew in number and intensity, as did her flock of followers who came to be secretly known as the Philadelphian Society. Mm. Yes, at first they operated in in the shadows. Mm. And the society believed in a coming era of brotherly love and tried to prepare others for this through their many publications. But this rush to spread their message to the public ended up causing kind of a split in the Philadelphian Society. Because up until then, they had managed to balance this delicate act between being private and public. They were holding uh, private prayer meetings, sharing their spiritual diary entries among members, you know, mailing them back and forth. But, well, eventually the the Philadelphian society crumbled apart, thus never bringing on the dawn of the new Philadelphian age. Mm. It was just too much tension between people wanting to spread the message and people like, I don't want anyone reading my diary. It was kind of that. And then also just the fact that Jane Led died. Oh, that'll do it, too. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess they they hadn't picked up really enough traction to... For there to be a replacement. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Instead, they just sort of influenced other groups that came after them, but they didn't have enough chutzpah to really like have a staying power. That's actually something you don't see very often. Usually someone else takes up the... The torch. Yeah, it's, no. Yeah. It's just died out. So before we get back into the story, uh, we'll do what we do. We'll pull a tarot card at the top of the episode. We'll discuss it more in depth at the end. Hell yeah. We have the Five of Cups. This is a, a kind of a sad card. Five of Cups, yeah. It's one of the saddest. It's like a very sad card. Disappointment. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's like a... It's one of the heartbreak cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not a positive card. No. No, no, no. We'll talk about that at the end. That's a sad fucking card. Isn't it? Yeah.
so our last episode it uh, left us on the heels of the English Civil War. Remember that? Yes. Charles the First, eleven year tyranny. The eleven year tyr- tyranny. The Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, all that stuff. The Parliament. Well, now we've moved forward a few decades towards like the end of the 17th century. Think, you know, 1670 through 1700, like the last 30 years. Okay. So what, what was going on with Jane Led for those last? Well, we'll get into that. Okay. But first, again, because we've hopped forward a few decades, we yet again have to reestablish a little bit more cultural. More context. Yup. We love some good context. We sure do. <laughs> the Philadelphian Society became known to the public around 1694 after a series of significant historical events took place and shifted England towards the Age of Enlightenment. Yeah. You remember that? Oh, I do. High school history class? Yeah, yeah. High school, one of I those. Mean, I mean, I know all about the Age of Enlightenment. Sweet. So I mean, like, not all about. Please don't hold me to that. <laughs> but we're but that's slight familiarity. That's when, like... You know, after the 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 Renaissance and and all this, this is when like you know the age of exploration was another mm. word for it. The all these you know European colonies popping up in someone else's backyard all over the world. The uh, expansion of the European powers to the New World, all this shit. Yes. Um, science, math, engineering, all this fucking all bullshit. that stuff. A lot of. Uh, Age of ritual magic yes. and shit too as along with the development of the scientific method mm-hmm. you know this is kind of where age of enlightenment is is kind of where shit starts to be recognizable for us today yeah. i would say do you know do you know what i mean I by do. that yeah i do where it feels like modern enough that we can sink ourselves into this story and not feel like we're so far back that it's completely foreign right the society looks kind of similar and yeah. shit yeah <clears throat> right so like you said at this time enlightenment thinkers they value human reason, religious tolerance, freedom of speech, democratic government, blah, blah, blah. Like, they're they're skeptics. They're intellectuals. But the Age of Enlightenment stands for something even bigger than all of those things. It's not mm. just like, oh, this was the age of science and everything. So let's talk about a few notable events leading up. There was the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. Oh, oh so, boy. This edict... It's revoked in 1685, but it had been issued an entire century prior. It granted religious freedom to Protestants in Catholic France. Okay. So when King Louis XIV revoked it, that meant uh, widespread persecution of Protestants and a Ah. mass exodus of French Protestants, the Huguenots, to other European countries. (laughs) So a bunch of fucking French Protestants are going over to England, the Netherlands, and, you know, with them finding their homes in these more accepting countries, they help to spread more ideas of religious freedom and tolerance. And Protestantism. And Protestantism. There's also the Glorious Revolution, which was a 10-year period lasting from 1688 to 1699, that marked a significant shift in power from the monarchy to parliament. It resulted in the establishment of a constitutional monarchy with William III and Mary II accepting the throne only under the conditions laid down by Parliament, as laid out in the 1689 Bill of Rights. As, yeah, Parliament Parliament won mm-hmm. the war with Charles, and now they get to tell the king, they get to keep the king under fucking... Under their boot yeah. a little bit. Then there was this thing called uh, the Toleration Act that gets passed, granting more freedom to nonconformists, you know, people who don't want to attend the Church of England. Like 
people that just don't want to go. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay, that's fine. You don't have to go to church. You just, you can't ever run for office or anything. They had, they had a law that said you had to go to church? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then there was also the lapse of the Licensing Act, which led to more freedom over the press in England. So, again, you got the French Protestants spreading their greasy scent all throughout England. Yes. Plus more freedom of the press. Plus more relaxed rules for nonconformists. Plus the monarchy is now beholden to parliament. It's a lot less centralized and pyramid shaped yeah it's a lot yeah. less central to the church now all, all these combined factors yeah because charles is all about that divine right of kings and shit yep and like in addition to all that political stuff you also got the the royal society the the society composed of experimental scientists who tried to gain public respect through their skepticism and unbiased approach you know you got isaac newton with his Principia Mathematica, published in 1687. You see around like... And all his magic shit. Yeah. Yeah. So... I want to I want to look up real quick. Um, go right ahead. When the fucking... The scientific method was developed. Because I know it's, it's right around this time. Yeah, since at least the 17th century. Right. I'm trying to find the actual... Bah, eh, whatever. I know it's the 1600s at some point is when the... You know, the, the the process that we call the scientific method, capital S, capital M, yep. was invented or coined or Around whatever you want to say. Around like the time of Francis Bacon, who's like a little bit earlier than this by like well, I think years. Well, I think that is uh, Francis yeah. Bacon was the uh, scientific method man. Right? Yeah. So that's all happening around this time period. Yeah, as well as like, you know, within the same hundred years, I don't have the dates pulled up, but like John Dee's bullshit right at the start mm -hmm. of the 1600s. A lot of just scientific method and ritual magic also, as we would see it today. Yeah. And like, yeah, whole bunch of people are just doing stuff. They just, they're just. A lot of people doing all just sorts of stuff. A lot of people of doing all sorts of stuff. Out of that comes the Philadelphian Society who, you know, like a lot of other mystical spiritual groups of the time, you know, doesn't necessarily fully align with the mainstream enlightenment's emphasis on rationality and empirical science, but. They were focused on things like spiritual revelation, inner light, you know. Yeah. No, wait. Wait. <laughs> I read that sentence incorrectly. <clears throat> so you might think that like something like the Philadelphian Society doesn't really have a place in the Enlightenment era. Like where does the a, a spiritual society like that fit in? I mean, but that's the thing, though, is it that it actually went, makes perfect sense. Yeah. It went both ways. Like there's. That's why I brought up like the ritual magic, as you mm -hmm. call it now, the Rosicrucians and shit. Um, that was being developed. Right. So at the like, same time as the scientific method. All of that stuff, plus the Philadelphian Society, it shows this shift towards questioning traditional authority, starting to like seek truth through personal experience, actual experiences that you can see and have yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even though it's a spiritual form of that, it still kind of holds the same values. Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to say that, like, we, we kind of forget that there is, at least in, in our society, in America, that there's such a thing as, like, spiritual and religious uh, innovation mm -hmm. and progress. Like, the, t the the culture, by and large, tends to think of progress with, with regards to religion as dropping it. Right. And moving away from it. But no, you can actually innovate within, mm -hmm. you know, theology and spirituality and shit. Like what was interesting about the Philadelphian society is that a lot of what they were doing is just 
having trance visions, talking about their dreams and trying to interpret that like through the scripture and what that might mean, trying to interpret the scripture in different ways and apply that to their own spiritual evolution. Right. Which was a thing that wasn't, you know, possible before the printing press, before all this shit. Yeah. Being able to directly compare your own bullshit to the text. Right. Without some priest looking at you. Totally. So, um, you know, the phrase haters make me famous. No, but you know, <laughs> like, a, like some some variation. Yeah, some something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, that that more or less um applies here to the Philadelphian society and what kind of helped give them more popularity. The hater in question is a dude named Friedrich Breckling. Freddie Breckles. Yep. <laughs> now Friedrich Breckling was born in Germany smack dab in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, sixteen twenty nine. One of those classic European, let's involve everyone wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah, fought for 30 fucking years. That's a long time. Dude, Europe just... That's like our whole lives, Sequoia. Imagine <laughs> if, if our country was in war that our entire lives. Well, I mean, you know, there's a case to, there's a, you know, we, we, don't worry about that part. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing about Europe. Yep. They've always just been They're killing each other. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this won't surprise any of you since you guys listened to part one. But, you know, the Thirty Years' War, why did it kick off? Religious shit. Every time. You know? Yeah. Europe's going through that serious battle between Protestants, Catholics, kind of like a football rivalry. But instead of teams, it's just different branches of Christianity. And it's like you're playing the same sport. The mascot's just different. It's the same thing, though. As in, well... mm. Fighting each other. I mean... I feel like one's a... Catholicism's more like... American football. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and fucking Protestantism is more like... Wait. European football. Everywhere else is football. They're both called football, but they're entirely different yeah. sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one's a that's lot more a good, like... That's a really with good the, And the Catholics have like the hierarchy thing. So you've... And that's kind of how a football team works, right? You've, yes. It's the divisions and the jobs right. and shit. And then, you know, soccer. I'm just going to fucking say soccer because that's where I, I live. It is... Uh, much more focused on the individual player, the smaller team spread out wider with less of a central structure. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the fucking best analogy of my life. It's beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, initially the conflict, you know, it's like local to Europe. But as with any good European war, escalates into a full blown international conflict. Uh, France. Like the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> Just like the World Cup, here's yeah. where things get really ugly. Yeah. Uh, 30 a lot of people fighting, war, too. Yeah. Causes <laughs> shit like famine, disease, large-scale destruction. Yeah. Um, battles, not the only thing killing people, because armies were just, like, roaming around through towns, looting and pillaging, like it's fucking oh, yeah. Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are starving, dying, there's diseases and plagues. Some regions lost up to 50% of their population. <laughs> 50%. And because the war lasted so long, it was just like a way of life at a yeah. certain point. <laughs> yeah. Like, I guess things are like this forever. <sighs> and, you know, a lot of people were, understandably, pretty disillusioned by the entire thing. You know? And Yeah, I can understand. Massive destruction, loss of life. Oh, in the name of God? Great. Not exactly a great selling point for God, you know? No. Organized religion in general. No. No, it sounds like it sucks. Yeah. Uh, So you can also think of this time period when the war ends in 1648 as the beginning of the shift towards religious tolerance and like the push towards the Age of Enlightenment with the the Treaty of Westphalia, the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia. Yes. Which uh, established the principle of quius regio 
Eus religio, meaning whose realm has religion. Basically, (laughs) the ruler of every state is just going to determine your own official religion. And you know what? Individuals have the right to practice their own faith privately. Okay? God, I love the future. Yeah. You know... Yeah. Imagine being forced to go to church. I love that, like, all of this shit seems so alien. The wars, the death marches, the fucking all this shit. It's just like, wow, people live like that? And it's like, yeah, for most of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah America's not great, but America nowadays is really not the worst place most, um, to live in all of time and history. Most places are pretty, well, a lot of places are pretty all right. Yeah. You know, compared, compared to. Yeah, so this whole um, piece of Westphalia stuff. It's a pretty big deal, uh, but it didn't mean that everything was all sunshine and rainbows for religious minorities. Actually, uh, far from it. But it is the start of the low, of the long, slow move towards greater religious freedom. Yeah, this. <laughs> okay. So yeah, Friedrich Breckling. Freddie Brecky, he's born yeah. right in the middle of all <laughs> that Brecky. madness. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just smack dab in the middle. And he ends up following his family's tradition of becoming a theologian. You know, why not? Better than <laughs> like anything. Like my else. father and his father. <laughs> him. I will study religion. That's a funny family trade. Isn't it? Yeah. So he studies all over Germany before he has an epiphany during a trip to the Netherlands where he meets a guy in a library who's like, hey man, if you're so religious, why are your clothes so fancy? And aha. <laughs> He sees the light, and he realizes that he needs to pursue true Christianity, whatever that means. Means no fancy clothes. Yes. So he returns home as a different man. He's now a doom and gloom prophet, <laughs> bent on reforming society, throws away all of his fancy clothes. He's taking this shit seriously now. Some dude fucking it insulted his fancy pants outfit? Yep. Jesus. So yeah, he goes back home, and he's now a prophet, and he's he wants to reform everything, and this causes a bit of a stir, because he's now publicly protesting against uh, the church and church taxes on farmers, and a work that he wrote called Speculum Pastorum, meaning... Looking a, over the pasture? A yeah. mirror of pastors. Oh, look at yourselves, pastors, yeah. yeah. And as you can imagine, um, this this didn't go down too well with the powers that be. So he ends up getting convicted and arrested. But old Freddie Brecky is a slippery fellow. He manages to flee to Amsterdam, where he meets famous educator Comenius. He also becomes a pastor while in Amsterdam and creates a congregation called Simultaneum. Which this is like dude loves his names. Yeah. It's a has his congregation is sort of a mix of Lutherans, Reformed, Catholics, Mennonites, whoever wants to come. And doesn't want to wear fancy clothes. Yeah. And he's also, he gets sought out by a bunch of other different religious groups who want to either like integrate with his church or pull him into theirs. But Breckling turns all of them down because he just wants to do his thing. He's a rebel with a cause. Is he, don't make him sound that cool. Is he just like a super fundamental, like fundamentalist aesthetic type, like no fun is he a no fun Christian guy? He's not a no fun Christian guy, but he is into piety. Sounds not, sounds no fun. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, all the other pastors are having too good a time. There's right. all this immorality in the church. Is that kind of what his, his thing is? Little bit, little okay. bit. So he publishes a bunch of tracks during this period of his life, like 
28 of them. And he also takes some time to travel around, gathering more followers, you know, typical religious tour. Yeah. In his writings, he declares himself a prophet, a, a witness of truth. And as a child of the Thirty Years' War, he was also an advocate for freedom of religious expression. But his rules around that are interesting. Hmm. In his work, Religio Libera, or Free Religion, he envisions a sort of religious marketplace, a, a bazaar, bustling <laughs> with ideas. <laughs> it's a nonsense bazaar. Yes. Yeah. But instead of goods, people are just like laying out their beliefs to the public. Sure. And the intention isn't to create conflict or chaos, but, you know, it's the, the free exchange and debate of ideas. You know, <laughs> he wants, the, he wants a, a literal free market of, of religion or yes. free market of ideas. That's yep. hilarious. I want to go there. Yes. So bad. To the religion bazaar. Yeah, that would be so much fun. It would be, wouldn't it? <laughs> Just walk from booth to booth. All right, sell me on your religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you got? <laughs> what you got? You going to save my soul? Who's How got the best it? beads? Yep. Yeah. So uh, here's where things get interesting. While Breckling advocated for this, you know, free for all marketplace of religious opinions, he actually was not a big fan of pluralism when it came to different sects of Christianity. In fact, he saw all of these different teams or different things as roadblocks to restoring unity in christianity oh i thought it was gonna be that like you one of those oh like we want freedom of religion for us lutherans or fucking protestant or whatever whatever yeah. sect of the the puritans right mm -hmm. religious freedom as long as you're with us right um but he wanted to unify christian but his religious freedom was actually talking about other religions yeah and he wanted to unify christianity as one of those that's interesting yeah so yeah. he was always at odds with like these other Christian sects who he believed were hindering the path to religious harmony. And when we talk about pluralism in a religious context, it means an attitude of, you know, accepting, respecting multiple religious beliefs within a given society. You know, in instead of saying my religion is the one true faith and everyone else is wrong, a pluralist approach would be more like, yeah, different people think different things. That's okay. Word. You know? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean agreeing with every single belief out there, but it means allowing the space for those beliefs to exist and be practiced. Yeah. You do your thing, I'll do mine. As long as we're not hurting anyone, it's all good. Yeah, hell yeah. But Breckling thought that the division in Christianity was hurting people. So it's interesting because he's like a pluralist in the sense that he's fine with Jews and like right. Muslims and, you know, other people doing their thing. But he feels like all of this division within the Christian church, not doing him any favors I mean, at all. Like, he's right, though. People be getting yeah. killed all the time. But like, also, the solution isn't just to like unify it by force. It's to just stop giving a shit. Right. So even though he sees himself like as part of this unification solution, he realizes very quickly that his influence is dwindling and people are not really listening to him. And rather than prompting, you know, open discussion like the religious bazaar of his imagination, his writings from this point on after 1680 start to take on this promotional political tone where he's not just like selling ideas and the promotion of other ideas. He's advertising his truth, yeah, 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 what yeah, he yeah. believes to be the ultimate truth. This is where it takes a little bit of a, a flip flop. Yeah, into what you expect it to be. Yes. Yeah. So one of his tracks, Paulus Redivivus, published 1688, he talks about how he's upset with the Christians. You know, big dogs of Christianity aren't spreading the real deal to non-Christians. 
And he's basically pissed off at other Christians for not doing enough to, like, respect non-Christians and meeting them where they're at. Interesting. Um, Yeah. He's also really pissed about the discord amongst Christians, which he thinks just gives Jesus a bad reputation. (laughs) You're giving Jesus a bad name. Yeah. And he also thinks that Christians are just, like, stuck up. Just like, really? You think you're so much better than the people that don't believe in Jesus? Well, then what the fuck kind of Christian are you? That ain't cool. If you're really so Christian, then uh, you should go help those people, whether or not they believe in the same shit as you. Yeah. It's the best way to convert people. Just show them that you're a good person. Yeah. And he even goes so far as to say that non-Christians should complain more about Christians. Because he's like, you know, he imagines that non-Christians must be pretty pissed about the state of affairs, you know, with them... uh, with the church basically running everything and like enslaving everybody under their holy empire, he's like, oh, that's, I could see non-Christians being a little bit peeved at us about that. Yeah. So, it's like a. Yeah. What's interesting about him is that unlike a lot of the other non-conformists, he didn't believe that salvation has to be like a Christians only club. You know, you should eventually come to Jesus because of course, at the end of the day, he is a Christian. But he did believe that everyone, Christian or not, has an inner light. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. And he, you know, he cites big names like Martin Luther, Jacob Boma, people that he sees as representatives of the truth. So he is like, he's a little groovy. Yeah, no, like, yeah, I was trying to find the right, like, joke to make or whatever. But he reminds me of like, it's sort of like a critical theory almost applied to christianity mm-hmm. in in that yeah i don't know like it is groovy yeah yeah it's like it's groovier than all the other shit right in that it's just it's trying not to it's trying to undo some of the damage and fucking not be an asshole about things right yeah so fast forward to 1690 breckling moves to the hague and he spends the rest of his life there trying to build his version of a pietist kingdom of god He's an advisor to this guy, August Hermann Frank, who's a significant figure in the German pietist movement, sends him loads of books to establish the first public library in Germany. And with help from Breckling, August Frank founds the Frank Foundations in Halle, social and educational institutions aimed at promoting the principles of pietism. You know, they get a big old orphanage, a bunch of schools for poor kids. You got a Bible Institute, a publishing house, some other shit. Like they, they're doing all sorts of stuff yeah. for the, the pietist movement, which, you know, this was a, a movement that thought that the church had become too intellectual. Oh, they thought that church needed to have more of an emphasis on personal faith and like that people should develop a deeply personal and emotional relationship with God mm. rather than just like, you know, following the pastor's word. Yeah. 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 But, like, I mean, that's a whole thing. That's it's all. That's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. But um, besides for being bros with August Frank, what else was Breckling doing? He was getting some sweet, sweet cash from Mary the second, mm. William the third's wife. And after she died, her husband continued to support him. So, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, And guess what? After William died, this other guy, Philip Jacob Spiner, a German Lutheran and father of pietism, starts helping Breckling financially, even securing an allowance for him from Anna Sophie of Denmark. Friends in high places. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, he's a pretty well-to-do guy. He knows a bunch of people. He knows like royalty, but he also knows people that have 
interesting spiritual ideas that are nonconformist and yeah, kind yeah. Of helps to bridge those. But he sees himself as, you know, he's the filter of truth and he has his own ideas about what's true. Yeah, this is like kind of the, oh, I can't even, I'm losing the words. There's like a, this, this is like, this reminds me of like the start of like that, like fucking soft New England yuppie ass Christianity. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That fucking. Pietist. I want to say a Waldorf school, whatever the fuck. I don't know. Those yeah. people. Yeah. They live so in, like, they live in a, a, a fucking rustic ass cabin, but they have more money than you ever will. Oh yeah. You know the fucking ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the family tradition of being a theologian. Right. Right. Yeah. So, like, again, how does he factor into Jane Led's story? Well, they actually began as peers, fellow nonconformists, but that didn't last. You see, Breckling was really confident about his version of the truth. <laughs> right, right. And in the 1690s, he started really questioning others, especially okay. those he felt were bastardizing Christianity. Breckling accused Led of spreading what he saw as a new gospel, something departing from the original Christianity. And criticisms of the Philadelphians were included in his work, Catalogus Hereticorum. She's got to stop naming things. Yep. It's a catalog of heretics. Damn it. It's just a big list of individuals that he thinks are dangerous and why. It's a bunch of his, like, deepest gossip. Uh, so he's he's a huge asshole. Oh, yeah. Okay, he yeah. He publishes all the fucking gossip. And some of it's juicy. We're going to get into the gossip that he has on hell the Philadelphians. Yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way... Very hard to parse out. I was reading this and I was like, wait, what? Like, there's big details left out. It's It was confusing, but I pieced together a narrative and it's wild. Excellent. Yeah. So in his catalog of heretics, Breckling writes about um, how a former student of his, Johann Heinrich Diekmann, mm. he was swayed by erroneous religious manuscripts and left him to join Jane Led's community. Hmm. I imagine that this is where the crack between him and Jane began. Probably, yeah. When, you know, she started stealing followers away. Also in his critique of the Philadelphian Society, a particular member of the group is singled out as an example of a very bad actor. Hmm. Uh, a man named Kiranus Coleman, <laughs> arrogant man who made extravagant claims about being the son of God and possessing the Philosopher's Stone. Quirinus Coleman is a merchant's son who studies law in Leiden. His time in Leiden sparked a radical intellectual change within him, where he encountered various religious dissenters, like Friedrich Breckling. Mm. Influenced by theosopher Jakob Boma, Coleman published his first work, Nubegesterte Boma, in 1674, which mm. is basically um, like new student of Burma okay. along those lines or like a new vision, something like that. Yeah. Um, and within it, he proposes the advent of a fifth monarchy in which he, Coleman, mm. as a self-proclaimed messiah, will usher in. Oh, oh yeah. so it's it's a it's a sort of a manifesto then. A you little might bit, say. Yeah. yeah. And what makes Coleman really interesting is his dealings with a couple of curious characters named Sir John Bathurst and Doctor Holgraf. We can't just Doctor Holgraf. Probably not his real name. <laughs> real sketchy fellow. Doctor <laughs> Holgraf sounds like a real sketchy yeah. fellow. You want to know what Doctor Holgraf did? He wrote a book about how he had met a group of mountain trolls. <laughs> And how they have the secret to the Philosopher's Stone. This is why I'm glad that I, I went and actually looked up this catalogus. I was like, let me see what he actually wrote in here. <laughs> Hold on. Dr. Holograph knows a bunch of mountain trolls and they told him how to make the Philosopher's Stone? Yeah. 
<laughs> so with the help of a another probably fraudulent doctor named Dr. Courtold, um, <laughs> they suckered a German baron for 40,000 golden. I love this so much. Yeah. This and, is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. So Holgraf takes this money that, that they sucker from this baron um, to manufacture a bunch of golden vessels, which he says he's going to trade with the mountain trolls the mountain, the- <laughs> in exchange for a magic elixir. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what happens here. Maybe like Holgraf forgot to split the earnings equally because Corfold ends up stabbing Dr. Holgraf's son to death what? and has to flee the country. So I guess their little like scam doesn't go over well. What the fuck? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. Why did so how did that Coleman? How did that story just happen? It it, it just did. <laughs> it just did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so out of the country having just um murdered the son of Dr. Holgraf. Yeah. Dr. Coltold. God damn. Coltold. <laughs> um Mary's this woman, Katharina Behrens, who's a, a highly spiritual woman from the Netherlands. Are any of these people real? This is just gossip from Friedrich Breckling. This is hilarious. Yeah. Okay. So Dr. Kortholt marries this woman in the Netherlands after fleeing um, from, you know, yeah. killing the, the son. And then he quickly abandons his new wife, Katharina, and um, attempts to annul their marriage, claiming it, it was merely a betrothal. And it just breaks her fucking heart. And why does he do that? Well, he met an insane lady (laughs) claiming to be the daughter of King Charles, who represented herself as a chemist who could produce the Philosopher's Stone. And I guess so he just marries her straight away, hoping that his marriage to Katharina will just go away if he ignores it. Never annuls it. Just marries this other woman who says that she's the daughter of King Charles. This dude's having so much fun. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, and now this other dude, Sir John Bathurst, uh, he's a friend of Friedrich Breckling's, fellow religious nonconformist. He lent Quirinus, Quirinus Coleman a bunch of money to make a trip from France to Smyrna to Constantinople so that Coleman could try and convert the Sultan to Christianity. But like his Christianity. Yeah. As the new Messiah. Right. So um, Coleman brings along his first wife and their children. But the family vacation goes sour because, you know, he he fails to convert the Ottoman Empire, Sultan Mehmed, the. Uh, oh, he f- fourth. He failed to convert the Sultan, you say? Yeah. What a surprise. Right. Just a whole bunch of John Bathurst money wasted for nothing. Um, so on the that's tr- the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I think that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's super dumb. So on the trip back home, Coleman just like leaves his family in Smyrna, just like just leaves him. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Bathurst sends him more money to try and help, you know, get his family to complete the journey. But his family never returns. And Bathurst is kind of just like, like, what the f- <laughs> dude? Are you fucking serious? What's wrong with you? You're just going to leave your face. So yeah. Now, Holgraf, we know he's a madman talking about mountain troll gold. These he's people are all insane. Scamming people, getting his son murdered as a result of his scamming. Dr. Holgraf somehow persuaded Sir John Bathurst that Quirinus Coleman should impregnate Bathurst's daughter. <laughs> you know, just like, leave the wife there, fucker. Um, John, you got a daughter, right? They're trying to, they're trying to create, like, a magic boy named Solomon. What? What is this? 
Yes, a union of, of Coleman and Bathurst's daughter would somehow result in the fathering of a boy named Solomon who should inherit the Philosopher's Stone from the mountain troll. <laughs> it's also worth noting that in some occasions, um, Queerness Coleman would use the fake name Solomon von Kaiserstein. <laughs> you gotta stop it. I know. It's too much. It's too much. That's why I had to include this. Like, this, <laughs> this was the dirt that was included in the catalog of heretics on the Philadelphian Society. This is the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, so Bathurst's daughter, um, God knows her feelings in the whole thing. She gets impregnated and sent to Amsterdam, where she does not give birth to Solomon, the inheritor of the Philosopher's Stone, but instead has a daughter that dies. Okay. So, after abandoning his family in Smyrna and knocking up the Bathurst girl, resulting in a daughter whose life and death he didn't care about, Coleman meets his second partner, Maria Gold, in Amsterdam. Moves to England with her. Okay. It's unclear if they ever actually got wed, you know, I don't, I don't know if they got married or not, um, but she dies three years later. So he shacks up yet again for a third time to a woman named Esther. Mm, Esther. They have a daughter named Salome together. But just like his other family rotting away in Smyrna, he fucks off yet again three years later because he's on like a three year clock when it comes to relationships at this point. I mean, Smyrna, you know, it's a uh, fucking. I mean, they might be it's on the, the coast. best time of their life. It's in Turkey on the coast, right? It's on- Yeah. They're better like, off. Ma- like maybe, hopefully, I'd probably. I don't know, like what, how they'd be treated as like some, some, some fucking. Coleman's a crazy man. They don't need him. That's true. I hope they were just eating like eating figs and shit, looking at the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So reaching the end of his life, Coleman moves to Moscow in 1689, where he delivered millenarian sermons until being denounced by Lutheran pastor Joachim Minicky. Following three months of torture and imprisonment. Coleman is burned at the stake on October 4th, 1989. Okay. Reflecting on Coleman's life, Breckling writes, We should know about the actions and fate of these unstable spirits and become wise with the help of their example and harmful doing. This should prevent us from walking with unreliable enthusiasts and producers of false gold away from God's boundaries and calling towards our destruction, which causes sad parents sorrow. We should be aware not to ridicule marriage, like Courtauld and Coleman and many others have done until their wings were burned and they punished themselves. Yeah, basically he's reflecting on the fact of like how poorly they treated the women in their lives. And yeah. They just like yeah, didn't seem to care about family and they didn't pursuing the wrong things. Well, did, I'm, and how they ended up burned alive uh, because of their actions. Fucking lit his ass on fire. Yeah. He doesn't have anything to say about the, the mountain trolls. There was so little on that. There was far too little about, like, I tried to look up Dr. Holger. Like, I'm like, I need more information. All that came up was the source that I had. That's all I want to talk about. I know. <laughs> like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> it's just like, that was just like a, a couple, a few paragraphs that just needed the Benny Hill music under it. Just, yeah. <laughs> so what the hell went on there? Yeah. So, obviously, that's pretty salacious material. You can imagine yeah. that people are interested in what's published in this catalog of heretics. I mean, this is some juicy freaking gossip. Yeah. So, thus, Friedrich Breckling, as a critic of the Philadelphian Society, influenced its formation and develop and development, perhaps, you know, more indirectly than directly. But because of his condemnation of them, as a man of a lot of influence and with, you know, connections to people in high places... This uh, 
catalogus hereticorum controversy only led to more publicization of Philadelphian society beliefs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because like... People hadn't heard of him until they're, now they're reading about like this Dr. Holgraf shit, Yo, I, this Coleman fella, and what the hell? These fuckers are off talking to mountain trolls, getting the philosophers to, I got, I got, this I gotta see. Right. So this only made the appeal of the Philadelphian society even stronger, you know, especially to anyone disenchanted with mainstream religious thought, anyone searching for new spiritual perspectives. It's like, mm, okay, that sounds cool. Yeah. Haters make me famous. Now we can finally talk about Jane. <laughs> Again, this is the second episode. It's just like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to her. Yeah. Yeah. Now we can finally talk about Jane. Now that we got all that out of the way. I just, we had to talk about Breckling and how, like, all of that stuff going on. Because once we get back to the 1690s and Jane's life, we can imagine all of that happening in the background. Like, right, right. Controversy going on. So where we last left off... Uh, Jane had spent 27 years in mercantile London with her first husband, their lives together spanning the English Civil War, the execution of the king, Oliver Cromwell's rule as Lord Protector, and the restoration of the monarchy. Ah, the halcyon days of yore. Yes. And if we'll remember from last week, back in 1663, when Jane was only 39 and still married to William, she bumped into a cool cat named John Portage. Now, Portage was a former minister and major player in the spiritual arena. Him and Breckling were buddies. Hmm. At one time in his life, John Portage was the man in charge of St. Lawrence's in Reading, later became the rector of Bradfield, owing the job to his impressive astrology skills. Hmm. Portage was also known as the leader of the Beminists, super fans of Yahoo oh, yes. yeah, yeah. And um, Portage was also kind of up to some weird shit in his hmm. younger days, and his older days too. Richard Baxter notable figure in the nonconformist movement, claimed that Portage was known to host spiritual communes where people sought divine enlightenment and interacted with angels. Hell yeah. Members of the group even took on biblical names, with Portage as Father Abraham and his wife as Deborah. His wife's actual name was literally Mary. That's pretty biblical. It's pretty biblical. Could have just stuck with that, but no, we're well, changing they need, names. They need the secret magic names. Secret magic name, Deborah. I need to come up with an alter ego. I don't know if it's maybe because I have an uncommon name. I've just never been good at picking names, <coughs> screen names, anything like that. It's fun to have an alter ego. I also, I feel like everyone else in the world has like six different fucking social media accounts on every platform where they can just like, they just post their most deranged thoughts <laughs> constantly. I've Like, I think that's true. I think everyone's just doing that. And I just, I missed the boat. I got I think I should, I should get me a sock puppet. Oh, yeah. Just go crazy on it. Yeah. Like my sock puppet where I'm a schizophrenic woman who's in love with the Tin Man. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yes. So uh, thanks to word getting out about Portage's whole angel ritual thing, Portage gets into trouble. He's charged with heretical beliefs, mm. you know, and he's charged with, you know, you're practicing a mystical form of pantheism. Pantheism? Yeah. Really? That's what they tr they think he's doing. It's, I, don't, I don't know if that's Because really there's accurate... spirit in everything, yeah. I guess. Right. Yeah. So he, um, he got off the hook a few years later in 1651, but then a, another few years later, Presbyterian minister named John Tickle. <laughs> there it is. Why is there so many fun names in this story? John Tickle. <laughs> 
John Tickle brings up the accusations again, and new ones keep piling up. Oh, he's going to tickle him. He's giving him the old tickle treatment. You know, while most of the charges against Portage about the things that were happening within his home were just chit-chat or rumors, the claim of interacting with spirits became a big deal. Mm. Even though one of his maids testified to the purity of their home life, (laughs) Portage was eventually kicked out of his church job for being, quote, ignorant and very insufficient. That could have... I could... That... That could have been anything. Yeah. So after he's booted out of church, he makes this pamphlet where he just defends himself and he admits like, yeah, okay, I was talking to angels and sure, yeah, I guess I summoned them using magic symbols. <laughs> what of it? Okay, I did that. Hell yeah. Um, another- Gotta own it. Yeah, right? Another interesting tidbit I found out about John Portage is that he acted as an unlicensed medical physician throughout the 1640s, which um got him into- Big trouble with the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, yeah. Just fake doctors are a theme in this episode, too. That's another one of those things, like, that's when you know. Yeah. Unlicensed, unlicensed medical practitioner mm-hmm. is the true last refuge of the scoundrel. Truly. So, despite not being a real doctor, he was known to many people as Dr. Portage. <laughs> and despite being 17 years older than Jane led, Dr. Portage and Jane became quite close. She became the second prophetess in his life after his equally spiritual wife, Mary, a.k.a. Deborah. Well, when Jane Led initially hooked up with the Portage Squad in the 1660s, they were just a cozy group based out of John Portage's home in London. It was John, Mary, and a few other big brain folks like Oxford-educated Thomas Bromley, who was a lawyer by profession, but underneath had a true passion for Christian mysticism and helped to translate a lot of the works of Jacob Boma. You know, I feel like I feel like I'm supposed to be one of these crazy pricks, but I've just been fighting it so hard and that's why my luck is so fucked. Yeah. Yeah, because like, I'm not on the in. right tra- track, but like I don't want to be one of these fucks, but like I know there's a part of me that have, that have a great time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Becoming obsessed. Yeah. Kind of culty, but you know. It's, right. We're just being a fake doctor. I could be a fake. I would love to be a fake doctor. It'd be fun. <laughs> there's your um, there's your alter ego, Doctor Kennedy, Doctor <laughs> something, Doctor Worm. Doctor uh, Worm? What? <laughs> Doctor Worm. <laughs> My Doctor Worm. That's fucked up, dude. Because. What? No, no. You have to give fucking a real justification for that. <laughs> because it's funny. You know how fragile I am. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Worm. Fuck off. <laughs> that one cut deep. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, I was thinking more about myself as Dr. Worm than you. You're really. more of a Dr. Worm than me. Yeah, I'm totally a Dr. Worm. You're like Dr. Beetle. I'm a beetle? Dr. Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> don't. Moving on. I don't like it. <laughs> so the Portage group, they're just meeting out of his home, right? And they're talking about their... Alternative mystical traditions, talking to angels, talking about the works of Burma. And even though Jane didn't jot down any of her visions while she was married, that that didn't mean that she wasn't getting divine signals. Wait, I... Like, if we, if we can get a sign that says the office of Dr. Worm and Dr. Beetle, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or Dr. Beetle and Dr. Worm. Is, there you is go. The, is the order, yeah. Mm-hmm. Beetle takes precedence over Worm for sure. Well, no, is it? Mm, I can't get into this. 
in a fight, Beatles win it. Yeah, but it's like the it's the linguistic thing that it's always the the B the the first the alphabetical the, vo- the vowels yeah go in the uh, I A I A O or E I O order. I feel you. Yeah, I saw that in a tweet from like some fucking dictionary yesterday, the day before. And I was saying, this is a thing. This is why it's like the big bad wolf, the fucking tic-tac-toe, the fucking law offices, the offices of Dr. Beetle and Dr. Worm. Yeah. Yeah. Beetle and Worm has a very, a nice sound feel, much more than Worm and Beetle. Oh, every time. You'll always see that the I sound before the A sound before the O sound. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm going to cut all that because, but it is interesting. The beetle and worm talk. No, I'll probably leave that in, but the (laughs) linguistic talk. So even though Jane wasn't really writing down her visions while she was married to William, that didn't mean that she wasn't getting some signals. Right. You know, Uh, in 1668, five years after meeting Portage and a a couple of years before her hubby's death, she got a heads up from God about some big changes coming her way. She was told that she had a special mission to take up as a spiritual writer. And these predictions were on point because Portage's wife, Mary, kicked it that same year. Hell yeah. Followed by Jane's husband, William, two years later. Fucking score. And it's important to note that while they never became romantically involved, Jane Led and John Portage had an intense spiritual partnership and essentially were one another's life partners, although not romantically. Yeah, see, I don't want that. Yeah. Well, John still had wives and stuff. Like, which oh, actually so. became kind of a point of, of conflict. Mm. Interesting life for Jane, though. Yeah. I guess she just, they didn't have chemistry. And so. Or maybe one of them would just smell like shit. It was Jane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry, Jane. She's dead. It's fine. It's true. Long dead. And so Jane was widowed at 46, but instead of moping around, she dived headfirst back into the spiritual world. With her earthly husband gone... That meant she was free to hang out with her first love, spirituality. She started Sick. keeping her diary, you know, a fountain of gardens. Yep. Containing her spiritual encounters and experience. Kept it for a whopping 16 years. Son bitch. Yeah. And uh, last week we went over her first vision. You know, she met the Virgin Sophia. And yeah, yeah. Around the same time as the first vision, Jane finds out that the guy looking after her late husband's money overseas... Has no intentions of giving it back. (laughs) So she goes from living this pretty comfortable middle class life to just super poor. Yeah. Which must have been a total shock to her. I mean, yeah. And most women in her position would have just, you know, remarried. But she was like, no, I have a divine path to follow. So four years later, she moves into the communal house run by John Portage, which... Causes quite a stir within Jane's family. I mean, she's moving in with this man that she's not married to, that she's not, like, romantically involved with. And she's just, like, living in this man's Who house. Who summons angels and fucking... Yeah. Jane's brother tries to bribe her into leaving the place and living with him. He's like, I'll literally give you money. She's like, no. What? No. Well, she joined a cult. Yeah. 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 Is what happened. And she's leading it. Her and John basically end up co-leading this private alternative congregation as best friends and spiritual that's a, that, that, I'm just going to say that's a cult. Yeah. Yeah, that is, is. that is a, a mini cult. cult. I mean, I think it can be a full of... It's a cult. It's a cult. 
That's a cult. It's a tiny cult, but it is a cult. Cults are, most cults are pretty small. Very true. So yeah, they do that for like 17 years. But you know, there is drama. Because Portage got married again. And his new wife, Delilah, she caused issues. As did Portage's seven grown kids, who were a handful. (laughs) Jane Led seemed to think that Portage was getting too distracted by all these worldly matters, writing... This person, who I've often mentioned, didn't achieve the ultimate level of wisdom, even though he came pretty close. His journey was tough, with strong opposition from fierce forces which, combined with life's trials, eventually led to his death. This confirmed a vision I had about a child slipping from my arms. However, the same spirit will be reborn in another, who will rise up and surely fulfill this prophetic vision when the time is right. Jane is a weird lady. She is. Jesus Christ. That's her writing about Portage. You know, he almost achieved ultimate wisdom, but he died. He's a child slipping from my arms. But it's okay. He's going to be reborn and his his vision will She's a weird lady, dude. Yeah. (laughs) So after Portage passes away, like a, a child slipping from her arms in 1681, Jane Led takes over leading the group. She publishes a few spiritual texts. How'd he die? Not sure. Hmm. Probably old age. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Just, yeah. I suspect Jane led, perhaps. Perhaps she poisoned. She ass. I think she poisoned him. I'm just going to say it. She got his ass. It's a wild speculative leap, but <laughs> it's canon. I love it. Yeah, so the people who are all living in Portage's house, now that he's dead, they've all got to find new places to live. Mm. And so does Jane. We don't really know what she does for the next 10 years or so, but it really? seems like she was just kind of laying low. She writes very simply that she just re- retreated into the wilderness. The wilderness. Yeah. She also spent some time in the 17th century equivalent of homeless shelters, just continuing <laughs> okay. to write. That's the wilderness. And and just she would go into the woods for several days at a time. What woods? Where are they? It's a good question. It seems like she would travel around just like vagrantly she was a vagrant yeah and what she would do is she would send um pages of her diary to like her contacts in other places to be compiled and people just have around. people just they just have weird lives they really they do. just do strange things yeah and her writings are very strange I'm... um she developed a rather unique Doctrine of Realized Eschatology. Okay. Which is a fancy way of saying that she believed the end times were already happening and taking place. Right. But not in the way that we might think of. Okay. Like, she never made any predictions about dates. She never felt that it was coming imminently. No. This whole end times thing, it's a slow and not even necessarily material process. Led had a flexible idea about what salvation was and thought that it didn't have to happen on a rigid timeline or even within the physical plane. Because for Jane Led, it was actually possible for one spirit to ascend and explore other realms, possible to even view the afterlife before the physical body's death, Hmm. if you could achieve a spiritual rebirth. And you know... Those who don't atone and achieve this cleansing through spiritual rebirth before their time of physical death. <clears throat> yeah. Well, let's have Jane walk us through the eight regions where one soul might travel. It has been revealed that there are eight regions or worlds that receive souls of various degrees and statuses. The first is our mortal, visible world. The second is the astral or aerial world. The third is the water elementary world. And the fourth is the fiery dark world. These are all worlds where sinful desires can exist. 
accompanied by proportional punishments until sin is eradicated through the meditation and atonement of Christ, our, through the mediation and atonement of Christ, our mighty Redeemer. The next four worlds are free of evil or sin. The first of these is the paradisical world, a celestial state where souls progress towards perfection for the kingdom of Mount Zion. The second heavenly world is the magnificent kingdom of Christ, accompanied by angelic principalities, elders, patriarchs, prophets, and apostles. The third heavenly world is the royal and principal seat of God the Father, the eternal virgin wisdom, and the seven spirits. This world is known as the New Jerusalem, surrounded by the glassy sea. The world above this is the still eternity, the origin of all other worlds. I will provide more details about these worlds based on the revelations I received from their deep original being. I never expected to receive further revelations after publishing my last two treatises, tr treatises, last two treatises, as I thought my life's day was nearing its restful evening. But my Lord continues to bestow fresh revelations upon me, igniting my spirit with his immense depth, compelling me to reveal hidden worlds in this final age. Interesting. So you've got like our world, the astral world, you've, you know, and you have these other, it reminds me a lot of Helena Blavatsky's like conception of, you know, the seven different um, planes. And then you have like the, the eighth and final in Jane Leds is the still eternity, the origin of all other worlds. That's like the egg that Blavatsky wraps all of her seven planes in. So it just shows that like there's this pattern throughout alternative spiritualities of this segmented um, universe. Yeah, I mean, you've got the four worlds of uh, of uh, Kabbalah. Yeah, you have earth, well. air, water, fire. Yeah, yeah. Malkuth, fucking Yetzirah, Bria, Natsaluth. And then I was just looking back through to see if like there was a, if the second four worlds in her... Uh, conception where uh like the first four are pretty clearly the four Kabbalistic <clears throat> worlds yeah but i wonder if the next four are like follow the same pattern right so basically what i want people to grasp is that jane led saw the end times as a spatial concept rather than a linear one like it's not oh. you know what more abstract it's not like something like her whole conception of of time and the universe and being was not very linear, you know. And you also have to think that she's slowly losing her eyesight, and as she's, <laughs> and her mind, as she's slowly losing her eyesight, I imagine that this is she, she feels like she's gaining new vision, and sure. she is both literally and figuratively, as she's becoming like more disconnected from seeing the physical plane. I can imagine that that would be a very spiritual experience for someone like this um <clears throat> interestingly she also in her writings imagined salvation as obtaining a metaphorical golden stone there's a lot of alchemical language in her writings um yeah i mean coming also, from where she does yeah the time and place being inspired by boma so does she think like like like, what do you mean by a spatial thing? As in... <clears throat> like that everyone's as ascending to 5D? Yeah, but you can do that without, like, having to actually... But like, is, she, is she saying, like, it's, like, more and more people are, are getting this thing? 
yeah it's, but it's not about like we're, the, we're getting there we're, okay, we're okay. getting into ascended masters territory a little yeah. it has it smacks of it right but instead of like oh there are events that are going to transpire it's more of an internal mental yeah, an thing. In, internal ascension she actually goes through like the 12 <laughs> she, she's got a 12-step program gotcha for how to how to die before death in order to to see the other realms cool yeah <laughs> accepting jesus though god damn it i know fucking lame <laughs> no as we're gonna be talking about on uh last week's bonus episode which we haven't recorded yet um you do know that jesus was the first emperor of lemuria right oh my god yeah oh boy <laughs> Oh, I can't wait for that. It's the, he's the angel Melchizedek, who was the first emperor of Lemuria. Oh. And then came back as the Christ. Oh, Melchizedek was... I saw that word so many times. He's all over the damn place. In Jane Led's writings. Yeah, do, really? Yeah. Oh, man, he's all over fucking Mormonism. He's all over the Lemurian shit. Like, Melchizedek's a... He's he's one of the most popular. Like, name shows up, but there's never any, like, substance to the character there, you know? I feel like... I feel like I should know Who more about he? him. What are you? He's the first emperor of Lemuria. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Salvation as a golden stone. Interesting. Yes. Um, she also believed that one could undergo a fourfold process of transformation from physical flesh into spiritual f- flesh in order to enter an invisible church. Okay. And this is like an invisible church that anyone who undergoes this process can go to like yeah oh, yeah i mean this is that fucking cloud upon the sanctuary shit yeah yeah it's just like that yeah, yeah, yeah and like you can do this while still alive it's super alchemical yeah. and like once one undergoes this mystical death you can look forward to experiencing a new type of life you know you're gonna enter a a new creation as jane calls it and you will become one of the first springing plants of this new creation you mm. want to ascend and become one of the first plants? Yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. Yeah. Another way that she portrayed salvation other than a golden stone was as a ladder that connects mm-hmm. heaven and earth, meaning that, you know, the elect, the people seeking salvation could have a more active role in their own salvation than was previously assigned to them by this idea of predestination. Oh, yeah, because you said she was, she, she fused the Calvinism shit. Mm-hmm. Fucking Calvinism. <laughs> so stupid. Stupid. Yeah, so this ladder meant that, you know, now people could climb up the ladder. And also it meant that heavenly beings could climb down and meet them halfway. Mm. In fact, she described an order of ascended and glorified saints who regularly come down <laughs> and help people on their journey up the ladder. Well, yeah, no. Another one. Another one. Yeah. Really, yeah. Well... At a certain point, you just have to, like, admit that it's, like, like it's real, but they're bastards. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, Jane's promise of more revelations to come in her writings, classic pastoral technique meant to keep folks coming back. Because mm-hmm. As long as she could help it, Jane fully intended to lead the elect on their internal spiritual journey of death, resurrection, ascension... Finally, glorification. Huzzah. The fourfold process that Jesus underwent. Mm. And you too can, with just a small payment of 1995. Yeah, Jane needs a place to wash. <laughs> yes. 
And I'm also going to bring this up now because I think it's cool. Her works have this recurring theme of a gigantic eyeball okay. in the sky. Fuck yeah. Or several eyeballs and like weird visions yeah, that yeah, symbolize, yeah. you know, divine illumination. Oh, I love it. I love a giant fucking sky, sky eye. Yeah. She would also often in her visions um, see a ball of light or like this orb that would float around and she would think of that as Jesus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and she also referred to, you know, this gigantic eyeball sometimes as the light orb. Mm. It's a source of divine wonders. It's goddamn alien menace at it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she also brings up this thing, uh, you know, this idea that there is a priestly and prophetical kingdom on Earth, a spiritual priestly order that aids believers in learning how to absorb the divine light that this eyeball casts. <laughs> So you got like your ascended and glorified saints that come down the ladder, but you also have like the spiritual priestly order on earth that's mm. helping believers along. Oh man. But there is a reading of this that is a lot like the whole serious shit. Mm -hmm. Aliens from Sirius beaming fucking beaming shit into people's heads from, you know, oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Oh yeah. 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 You want to read a vision that pertains to eyeballs yeah, contained yeah, yeah, yeah. in Led's book, The yeah, Tree of go. Faith? Yeah, let's go. This one's a crazy vision. Ah, fuck me. All right. Mountain trolls and goddamn aliens. I had a vision of four wheels moving in the four elements, earth, water, air, fire, each one lifted by a bright spirit. I was told these wheels represent natural processes driven by a mighty spirit towards the eternal element. Once this touches them, it affects the entire human body made up of the four elements. I then saw these four elements merge into a single, huge, flaming wheel that spread across the sky and had seven eyes in its center. Fuck yeah. That's sick. <laughs> yeah. I understood, I understood from this that the ordinary physical part of nature in the four elements would be transformed by the Spirit of Christ, who wore a body made of these elements. This spirit enters our bodies and moves them in a powerful circular motion so every part can be touched by and partake in the properties and powers of this pure element. This leads to their being absorbed in the great governing wheel that rules over all lower wheels and planets. Okay. Everything in our natural world is under their power until it rises to this upper ruling wheel with its seven eyes. I was told these eyes are seven super celestial planets or constellations that rule over this world and its planets. This is the path to physical redemption. The spirit of my Lord told me about this, but it must be kept secret until my physical elements fully merge into the upper wheel. Okay, for now I can say that this upper flaming wheel with its seven eyes is powerfully attracting some people I know who have been touched by it. It won't stop its motion until they are transformed from their earthly lives into the superior element, allowing the heavenly constellations to rule over the earthly elements that remain unre unredeemed. Yeah. Okay. So that seven-eyed thing, that reminds me of how... In reminds the, me of a lot of fucking things. In her third heavenly world the new jerusalem she, yeah. she says that that's inhabited by god the father the virgin wisdom virgin sophia and the seven spirits mm. i wonder if like this these seven ruling bodies these seven ruling planets are the seven spirits that reside in her third heavenly world well i mean if we if we like you know sort of just accept that it's based on things that have come before yeah right then it's then that's it's archangels, planets. That's the planets. Yeah. yeah, it's the it goes all the way all the way back. It's the seven <laughs> ruling, mm -hmm. the archons, the fucking whatever. Yeah, the colored lights in the sky that move around. Kind of sweet. Yeah, it's fucking sick. But it like also, I don't know that fucking 
that wheel shit, you know, is very much like lots of other visions of weird shit. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah, no, it reminds me of a lot. This is a goddamn alien menace at it again. And by which I mean, like, you know, the spooky, whatever mm. the fuck. Mm. So now we're going to fast forward a whole bunch and pick up her story again about like 11 years later when she gets another helper on her divine mission. Okay. This helper comes in the form of yet another doctor. Uh, Dr. Francis Lee. Real doctor or fake doctor? Real one. Okay. An actual doctor who'd actually studied medicine in the Netherlands. Okay. And a, an Oxford scholar. And this Dr. Francis Lee becomes Jane Led's most crucial spiritual ally after John Portage. Frank Lee. Yep. Quickest gun in the West. Yes. Now... While abroad, Francis Lee was introduced to Led's work through German translations, and he was urged by two different people, you should go find her, man. So <laughs> go he does. find that crazy old bitch. He does. He goes over to England in 1694, and he finds the 70-year-old Jane Led living humbly in a charitable housing facility in Stepney. Now, despite her worldly poverty, she'd continued her spiritual devotion and was still awaiting further divine revelations. Now... This marked a new spiritual partnership for Led. Lee, who was 37 years younger, along with his Oxford mate, Rector Richard Roach, would become key proponents of Led's teachings. Rector Richard Roach. I don't know if it's funnier with the alliteration and the implied Dick Roach. Yeah. Or just to call him Rector Dick Roach. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so Dick Roach and Frank Lee, over the next decade, uh, until Led's death in 1704... They support her by transcribing her visions because, you know, she's fucking blind. <laughs> she, she needs some help. I just want, can we just, what the fuck is this? The, these, we're going from, oh, this is history. Oh, yes, very history. To Rector Richard Roach and fucking mountain trolls, just like in sentences here. Yeah, I know. This is very, there's some crazy whiplash going on. It's absurd. Yeah. So these two younger dudes just like, Start taking care of this old lady. They're yeah, fascinated yeah. by her. They're like, oh, a magic old lady. She can see visions <laughs> of Jesus. What's Jesus saying? So, yeah, they manage her correspondence. They publish her insights. And during this period, Led's circle of friends grows. Her humble living conditions improve and support, se support seems to come from an unseen hand. Right. It's just, it's just, it's just people hanging out with her. Yeah. It's also... Baron Niphausen. Baron fucking Niphausen. Yeah. Baron okay. Niphausen is, is the unseen hand. He's a court official of Frederick III, elector of Brandenburg. Oh, yeah. And he reads the German version of Led's The Heavenly Cloud Now Breaking. And he's so inspired that he sends her a bunch of funds to help her move out of the charity house and set her up in a new place. Led and her daughter, Barbara Walton, moved to a small house in Hoxton Square, Shoreditch. Niphausen also hired a man from Utrecht to start translating all of Led's work into German as soon as they were released in English. Mm. In a fortunate turn of events, Francis Lee ended up marrying Led's widowed daughter, Barbara Walton, who was the only one of Jane's four daughters to survive through adulthood. Now, together with their new foreign friends, like Baron Niphausen, Jane, Francis, Dick Roach, Anne Bathurst... And the remaining members of the John Portage group officially incorporated as the Philadelphian Society for the Advancement of Piety and Divine Philosophy. Sick. Some, sometime mid-1690s. I don't really know the exact date. 
mid 1690s. Yeah. yeah. Well, they embarked on their first significant mission in 1696. And this mission was trying to publish the 16-year diary of all of Led's spiritual experiences that had been compiled on various scraps of newspaper <laughs> over the years. It took five years to complete and resulted in, at this time, 2,500 pages. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, Led's divine communications were published in English, and German translations were made for Philadelphian society members living in mainland Europe. And then she dies. Mm. Age 80. It's the 65th year of her devoted spiritual journey, and basically the group agrees our mission's kind of been fulfilled. I mean, Anne Bathurst, she wants to continue it because she's having visions too. Uh, oh, she tries to do it? Yeah, but then she okay. dies. She dies too quickly. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they dissolve the society. They return its name to its broader context and encourage all those inspired to embody the true Philadelphian spirit through Jane Led's divine messages. You know, you don't have to, the society doesn't have to exist to exist, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe they were just all getting sick of each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're all getting old. Maybe Jane's visions were just that, they're just hot shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that the society had done all the hard work of compiling these works, what happened to them over all these years? Yeah. Well, it was apparent that having these writings in print kind of posed a challenge to the religious institutions of the era, you mm. know, in a time when the monarchy was closely tied with the national church. Mm. The idea that somebody could just interpret scripture as, like, being mystical and personal. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, especially by, like, some old lady in a charity house. Yeah. I don't know. So, over time, her printed messages just start to disappear from public distribution, Thankfully, get archived and photographed in the 20th century, like, you know, last century, 1900s. Yes. Pieces of Jane Led's writings get discovered, updated, and are sent around to people just via snail mail. Oh, like underground spiritual yeah. weirdo shit? Hell yeah. Send it around. Then in the mid-1990s, someone has the idea to collect everything she wrote, keep it all as, as true and faithful to the original as possible, and put it online, which someone did on a website called PassTheWord.org. But there's also JaneLed.org. And these mm. websites seem to have like a weird rivalry with one another where PassTheWord.com is like, no, no, no. There, there have been a lot of false Jane Led texts published with like incorrect things in them. This is the true version. Interesting. Yeah. That's it. So she, it was really like super underground up until like the... 1990s? Yeah. Weird. And still, she's not very heard of. Yeah, no, I haven't. Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't heard. The word never got passed to me. Passtheword.org. Passtheword.org, yep. I don't I like I think it. they have other stuff on there, too. Okay. I'm not sure what the broader context of the website is. Oh, it's to share, um, like, old manuscripts. Okay. Yeah, they have right. some... um. Boma manuscripts. They have Thomas Bromley on there, the lawyer that we brought up earlier, who is a member of the society. They have some Francis Lee stuff on here. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they're just... They're just really into Jane Led. Huh. And, and keeping her word alive. And that, like, current of whatever the mystic Calvinism? Yeah. <laughs> so... 
I mean, if you're interested in this, anyone listening, you can go to passtheword.org and you can look through her gigantic diary, which contains, I mean, pick, I mean, pick I, any entry. Yeah. And I it's mean, she was wild. a crazy old lady. Yeah. Like, she's, I want to, I want to read some of it because it's weird shit. It's super weird. So before we wrap up the episode, I want to go over the 12 branches on the tree of faith that Jane okay. says that you have to you have to climb in order to, you know, reach your spiritual rebirth. Okay. Now, I think we'll like ping pong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first branch of this tree is that, you know, the, the first belief, the first act of faith, you must believe that sin has led humanity into a fallen state. Hmm. Second, believe that this sinful state has separated us from God and from the divine knowledge and blessings. Third, have faith that a spark of eternity remains within all people, which can lead them to seek God and lament their separation from God. Hmm. Lament. Fourth, believe that the eternal word, Jesus Christ, became human to offer redemption to all through faith in him to restore, to restore spiritual likeness to God. Never makes sense to me. No. Now, fifth, have faith that Christ, born within the soul, has the power to cleanse and save the soul from all sins. Sick. Sixth, trust in the Holy Spirit to support this new spiritual birth, protecting it from temptations and strengthening and, and strengthening it until it can reveal itself to the world as reborn. This just starts making not sense. You got to trust in the Holy Spirit I'm to trusting. support your new spiritual. And, you know, I guess at, at this point. So first you got to establish faith in, in Christ. Yeah. Then you got to trust in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then after that, seventh, believe that Christ's risen life in the soul leads to the death of sin completely. A process that separates the soul from all remnants of fallen nature. Okay. Eighth, trust that the Christ will appear within the sinless soul, presenting it to God as a marvel of spiritual transformation, ready to be God's bride. Yeah, you got to remove so, all the, the sin from your soul with the help of Christ, by yeah. letting him... Once your soul is clean, then Christ will appear and make you God's bride. Yes. Present you to God... Oh God, Jesus Christ. Ninth, believe that Christ will fulfill the sacred union with the spiritually prepared bride, acknowledging her as his chosen one before all celestial <laughs> beings, and she will be recognized for her excellence both in heaven and on earth. Oh, Jane just wanted someone to tell her she did a good job. Yeah. I, I, I feel you. Tenth, have faith in the joy and love that will follow this divine union, which will erase all past sorrows. Eleventh. Trust that Christ will share all he has with the bride, mm. giving her an equal share in his divine power and wisdom and dominion over all created beings. Whoa. <laughs> I guess it's changed. Uh, lastly, I firmly believe that Christ will return to earth to bring his bride, the church, to his father's house in heaven, to celebrate their unity with all the saints in a glorious reunion. This glory is as great as the glory Christ had with the father before the creation of the world. I like that the last branch on the tree of faith is like, Jesus is, he's, he's gonna, he's, he's gonna come and kill you and take you up to be his bride. <laughs> I mean, he's gonna return to earth to bring you, to bring you up. You're gonna die. Like that makes Is that, sense. is that what she's saying? 
yeah, he'll return to Earth to bring his bride to celebrate their unity with all... I mean... To bring his bride the church. His bride the church to his father's house in heaven. I mean, she's a crazy old lady. I don't know how much sense you can really make of it. I don't know how much sense I can make of it. I've tried my damnedest best. I know you have. <laughs> I don't think there's that much sense to make. No. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like, honestly, when you read Jane's diary, she is constantly seeking. She is never just like, you know, secure in herself. She's always yeah. like, God, are you there? You yeah. got more for me? Tell me what this means. I don't know what this means. I don't know what to do. Can you show me? I need you to show me. Someone show me. I mean, Virgin it, wisdom. Show me. Sounds like... Just externalizing everything. Sounds like she has OCD. Perhaps. That's what it... But also finding, like, great euphoria in when those, like, answers and... Yeah. Lightness, when that lightness comes. It's uh-huh. Like divine, you know? Just sounds like she has OCD. Yeah. Oh, that sucks, Jane. You did a... I'm not going to tell you did a... You, I don't know if you were excellent, but you were something. <laughs> she definitely made something of herself. She's got a weird vibe. I There's wonder, a wicked weird vibe to so Jane What's so interesting Red. in her story is that, remember, she had like either nine or 12 siblings. Right. On the, and yet you don't hear about any of them, except well, her, her brother her brother was yeah. like, don't move in with that portage man. Yeah. And then after that, you don't hear fuck all about her family and her. Lost touch when she joined the cult. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing is like, I don't know how much we know about Jane Led either. Like we this don't. was, this her shit was super fucking been, interesting. Has but been like, built like around yeah. her. But she just this crazy lady who wrote fucking because because all she did was right. All she did was right and and view. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's wild though. It is. I'm struggling to think about how the Five of Cups relates. Mm. I'm thinking about loss. Well, you you just said it as a theme in Jane's life. She's constantly seeking. Yeah, she's never secure in herself or secure in, in anything. She never turns around to realize that even though she's got a couple spilled cups. There, there's a few standing up behind. I mean, so no, she does that too, though. I mean, I, you she's know, always. Um, I also think about the five of cups as a card representing, like, you know, loss. He's yeah. wearing a big black cloak. I think about how the major points of transformation in her life have been when her husband died, when Portage died. Sure. Like these deaths have been huge catalysts for her and her spiritual transformation i mean so you um yeah so five of cups is fucking uh, it's not a disappointment it's sort of like uh if you take like the uh it's definitely like a breakup card right yeah but it's like not the event of it it's the realization of the failure before it happens it's disappointment it's the it's the death that happens in the heart yeah. before you know, like a real death happens mm -hmm. when someone lets you the fuck down right I mean, if she's writing fucking 2,500 fucking pages and like living in the goddamn woods and shit time to time, although I don't know how much woods was around there. Like it, se like, it seems like she was sort of kind of constantly disappointed with herself yeah. and where she was and, she and never, all this shit. Like, she never landed on a solid theology that was like, okay, this is what she was constantly re-examining, constantly going back and just yeah. always yeah, examining, yeah. examining. It was never, it was never right. And never it doesn't, just like, this is what I believe. Now I'm going to just live my life. It was always just, it, 
she lived inside of her. Bel- yeah, she was ruminating. It was fucking pure fucking OCD madness. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Everything is a sign from Sophia or <laughs> a sign from Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, also, there's not a hint of joy in her writings that we read. Mm-hmm. Like, am I am I fucking that up or was there just not any joy ever? Like, there's how great the kingdom of God will be. Right. But like. But like, are you enjoying your life, Jane? Yeah. I yeah. don't know. I don't, you know? There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of fucking, we're, everyone, we're doing things bad. This is bad. We got to get right. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, she was just a grumpy, crazy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and like, like maybe that's, just, maybe her vibe was just the, the five of cups. Yeah. Like, was she, was she pleasant to be around? It seems like it because okay. a lot of people like wanted to be around her and seemed to gravitate towards her and her writings at least. Were but... they pleasant to be around? <laughs> I mean, hell if I know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the Five of Cups. Well, I think about it as what is the Philadelphian legacy? Like where where did that end up? You know? The two assholes making fun of him on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really, if she could listen to yeah, this, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but I, I I can't really say I guess how much influence they had just by knowing what like what they like. doesn't seem like very much. I mean, nobody's ever really heard of them. Like you've got this past the word website that sure. she's like fantastic, and you know yeah she's pretty influential. I mean, if only because of the volume of work that she produced, sure yeah you know it's very prolific how much she wrote. I mean, and also like it does if. And you then know. she's a, a a woman mystic during a time when that really seemed to value rationalist male thinking. I mean, definitely, yeah, 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 yeah. Even the the religious, even the magic of the time was super technical, right? Right, Whereas like that's where the hers was entirely like self led. Like, no, you just go into the woods for three days and just like. Yeah, tran- yeah, trance the fuck out. And also, I'm sure it helped that her vision was deteriorating and probably stuff looked crazy because, you know, I know when I don't have my glasses on, light refracts like crazy, especially at nighttime to look outside. S- stuff looks very weird. You can imagine that if your eyesight's slowly going, that you start to see all sorts of weird stuff. Oh, for sure. And it's much more easy to go into your mind when you literally, you know stop being able to see your visual field oh definitely i'm thinking about doing again another blind the blind prophet is a fucking that's an archetype yep you know i think i think my real i think my real answer for like the the five of cups like my interpretation where i'd land on it is like her disappointment in herself and the world and like the, the constant rumination yeah my real real answer is it's my disappointment in not learning more about the mountain trolls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just like those two standing up cups, the trolls are right behind me. <laughs> they're, they're right there. They always have been. Yeah. Does that do her? Yeah, that'll do it. Well, if Word. you like what we do, and you like that our show is ad-free and would like to keep it that way. <laughs> if you want to keep this nice little arrangement we got mm. going on. <laughs> you can sign up for our Patreon. Patreon.com slash the nonsense bizarre. We have a bonus series over there. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the latest one is about the Lemurian Fellowship, a 1936 Lemurian group. That has some interesting things to say about some of our old friends, and that'll be fun. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I. It's great. There's a lot of woodworking involved. Yes, we have not recorded that yet. 
Right. But by the time you're listening to this, we did. We're yeah. time travelers. Time is a fucked up. It's, it's a funny thing. The eschaton's it's, it's always a here. Spatial concept, not it's a, a spatial, linear. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you can also leave us a rating and review. That would be sick. We'd appreciate it. You can also tell your friends. You can also tell your local blind prophet. You can also tell your doctors, real or fake. Real or fake, especially the fake ones, please. Please. I need more of them in my life. And All if right. you need any medical servicing, contact the offices of <laughs> Dr. Beetle and Dr. Worm. Yes. <laughs> Take care. Take care.